Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. Many people, when asked about racism, talk about the days of slavery, segregated buses, white and colored water fountains, and segregated schools. But what about today's racism? American kids, as well as others throughout the world, are living at a time of ongoing public debates about race, daily displays of racial injustice, and for some, an increased awareness surrounding diversity and inclusion. And while everyone should learn about racism, past and present, How are white, affluent children being educated about white privilege, unequal educational opportunities, and police violence? This was the overarching question Margaret Hagerman aimed to answer in her new book, White Kids, Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America, a book that summarizes two years of research that focused on her observations of upper-middle-class white families in an unidentified Midwestern city and its suburbs. In particular, she followed 36 kids between the ages of 10 and 13, interviewed them, watched them interact with others, and listened in on their conversations. What she found out about modern-day racism and what it means to grow up with privilege in a racially divided America was eye-opening. Dr. Margaret Hagerman is an assistant professor of sociology at Mississippi State University. Her research focuses on how children learn about race and racism in the context of their families and communities. Her new book, as I mentioned before, is called White Kids, Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America, and is already being celebrated for its honest portrayal and revealing message since its release last month. I'm really looking forward to digging into this very tough and somewhat uncomfortable topic. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Hagerman to the show today. Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you for having me. Well, before we get into the meat of the matter, for those who haven't had the opportunity to meet you or to read your book, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and how you got so interested in the concept of racism in the context of families and communities? Sure. So um, I think that my interests in this topic really go back to my own childhood, you know, growing up in a suburban community in Massachusetts. Um, but I think that when I was in graduate school, I really got more passionate about this topic. I was doing all kinds of reading in the area of racial socialization, which is sort of um, how we describe the ways that parents communicate ideas about race to their children. And when I was doing all of this reading, I um, was I realized that the literature was focusing for very important reasons on the experiences of African-American families, especially, and and in particular, how parents raising black children in America are preparing their kids for the potential future um, acts of discrimination or prejudice or racism. Um, And so I was really fascinated by that work. Um, But what I started to think about was, okay, so what's going on in white families? Like, how are white parents teaching their children about race? And and racism and you know is this a place where kids are learning to be racist or are our families a, a space where children can actually learn to be um, anti-racist or race conscious and learn to challenge inequality so I became very interested in this topic and that was what motivated me to do this research that then led to the book. Mm, such an interesting topic and I'm sure a lot of people have so much to say about it which of course is included in your book I I can imagine when people hear that you've been studying racism in America for over two years, I bet they don't typically picture your research group being one of affluent white kids and families from the get-go. But you've been following upper-middle-class white kids for over two years to sort of decipher how they learn about race. 
And what made it so you decided that this would be your group rather than making it a, a, a mixed group or looking into all the different sides? What made you decide that you really wanted to just zero in on this particular group? Is it a group that has been understudied uh, in, in, with regard to racism? What is it in particular about that group? So that's a really interesting question. And actually, in the social science literature, we see that white families have often been subjects in, in research, right? Going mm -hmm. back to yeah. policy, sociology, human development. Um, but what there doesn't seem to be a lot of are studies that are taking a, a critical perspective on race and how white families have race. And in fact, um, some of my scholars, Linda Burton and uh, some of her colleagues, have a great article that talks about, you know, this idea that, well, white families do have race. It's, you know, even though oftentimes people who are white might not identify their race as meaningful to them, um, certainly we know from a more sociological perspective that race shapes all of our lives, regardless of how we personally are identified. Um, and so that was one of the sort of motivations, like, you know, there, there just isn't a lot of scholarship in this area. Um, but I also was, was be trying to be thoughtful about the ways that, you know, we know from research that when you grow up affluent, um, you are likely to be affluent as an adult. And so, you know, these are children who, you know, if, you know, in my study, who will very likely grow up to be in positions of power as adults and be in leadership roles. And, you know, how are the newest generation of white affluent people, you know, sort of interpreting the world, making sense of inequality, privilege, and then, you know, in particular, how are they understanding racism? So there's a lot of things that kind of came together um, to, to motivate me to, to pick this particular group of folks to study. I think it's a very intriguing idea of, of looking at how white kids understand race, talk about race, and I, th I think it's really important research. So after observing and talking to these children and families for the duration of your research, what exactly did you conclude? How do white kids learn about race? So I think one of the most important findings from my work is sort of this phrase, actions speak louder than words. Um, and so while I absolutely think that how we talk to kids about race is really important, and I'll get to that in a, in a little bit, but I think that it's also important for parents especially to be thoughtful about what kinds of um, behaviors they are modeling in their own everyday lives, and then also sort of these decisions that they make about how to set up their children's social environments. Mm -hmm. So because the families in this book had a lot of economic privilege, they were able to make all kinds of different choices about the childhoods that their kids would end up having um, with respect to neighborhoods where, you know, kids play and make friends and get into carpools, other people, you know, um, as well as schools and travel and media and peers. And, you know, all of these different things um, are really important, the decisions that parents make about them, because kids spend time in the world noticing patterns, you know, looking out the window as you drive through different parts of city and, and having questions, right? So, so the talking part comes, I think, you know, alongside all of the observing and interacting that kids do. But I think that too often we lose sight of our actions, you know, we focus, we focus so much on how to talk about race, that we sometimes lose sight of the fact that what we say also ought to map onto, you know, what we do. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, there are different approaches that people are taking in order to teach kids about race. So, if it's, whether it's experience or conversation, what would you say is the impact of the different approaches people take to, to talk to kids about race or to help people, help their kids understand more about race? Sure. So I think that one of the, um, I hope, useful points of my of my research in my book is that I actually have the voices of children, and I, and I actually can document what this group of kids, um, you know, I can't generalize to all kids, but what this group of kids, how they actually were thinking about race and how they were talking about race with their siblings, with their peers, and then also with their family member, with their parents. Um, and so what I found though is that there are some patterns in my data. So the first group of parents. 
that I'll talk about, they were raising their children using what I call a colorblind approach, Mm -hmm. meaning that they believed that if they did not talk about race with their children and they did not answer any questions that the kids might have or, you know, engage in any way with conversations about race, that that would ultimately lead to their children not being racist. And so that was the approach that they took. Um, but what went along with that were a whole set of choices about how to set up their kids' lives such that this particular group of kids rarely came into contact with a person of color. They lived in almost exclusively white community, um, went to a, a predominantly white school, you know, like, like in the 90 percent, you know, percentile mm-hmm. of white, um, I think even 98 percent white, um, you know, and their friends were all white. And so, you know, they weren't talking about race with their parents and they were living in this very white sort of bubble, but yet they still had all kinds of ideas about race. And the ideas that they had oftentimes, um, I thought were not just inaccurate, but sometimes they actually were really problematic Mm -hmm. and they produced um, some ideas that I think their parents would actually be, you know, would be very discouraged about, you know. Um, For example, there were two boys that I observed who were eating string cheese together and they were debating why there are so many black NBA players. And, you know, they're debating this, going back and forth. And what they concluded was that black people must have an extra muscle in their body that allow them to be so athletic, which, you know, is really problematic because, number one, it's, it's incorrect. Mm-hmm. And two, it connects back to this long history of scientific racism and, you know, going back to all the, the anthropological, you know, racism and thinking about measuring people's bodies and creating hierarchies, you know. So mm-hmm. it, it was really striking to me. And... A lot of the children in this first group, they um, had a lot of anxieties and questions about race, and they didn't feel like they could ask their parents or even really talk about it with any of the adults. Um, They even had a rule at their school that said you weren't allowed to use the word racist um, because this this was because the kids were using the word racist to insult each other. Mm. Like, rather than saying, oh, you're stupid, they'd go, you're racist, and they were laughing, you know? So the Mm. teachers decided to just erase that word. Um, so anyways, that kind of gives you a sense of the first group of, of families. Um, and that's very different, though, from this other group of families, the second group that I'll talk about. And the second group was really invested in talking openly about race. They talked a lot about the history of racism in America. They connected the history to the present, which I think, you know, was really important for their children to, to be able to have that sort of model for them. Um, they did not make the topic taboo. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, these kids had much more sophisticated understandings of, of, of race and racism. They could talk about racism um, with, with more confidence. Um, but they also were living lives that were meaningfully racially integrated. They were going to schools that were integrated. They were living in neighborhoods that were within very close proximity to a predominantly black neighborhood. Um, and they, you know, they had a whole host of experiences that reinforced what their parents were saying. Um, and so in the book, I sort of draw out some of the um, moments of hypocrisy or sort of contradiction, you know, between what this second group, what they say and what they do. But I think the more the more uh, overarching message that I'm trying to sort of share today is that, you know, these are two very different groups of parents that are approaching this topic differently. And then there are different outcomes in what the kids actually think. So I'd love to know if you had the opportunity to debrief and speak to the families that were kind of living in the bubble and then their kids were had a very distorted or wrong view of of race of racism what would you want to convey to those families to help get them on a a more um, balanced path to, to helping their kids understand more about race and racism. Yeah, so I think that one of the things that was so striking to me in my research was that when I finished the interviews with parents or with kids, the parents would immediately want to know what their kids mm-hmm. said. They want to be, they're very curious about that, which I completely understand. Um, but what what really struck me was that I don't I didn't get the sense, and this is actually true for many of the families, um, that that parents were doing a lot of listening to their own children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that before you can really start talking about race with kids, I think that it's really important to listen to what they to what their questions are to what they've been noticing um, to what their ideas might already be I mean we have research that shows that very young children are noticing patterns around race um, they're adopting you know 
I, negative ideas about about members of a, of a different race than them. Um, and so, you know, I think that it, listening to kids is probably the first most important uh, step. Um, I also think, though, that for these families that were not wanting to talk about race, I think part of the reason that they did not want to talk about race was that they were themselves, as adults, very uncomfortable with this topic. Um, and so I think one, one piece of advice that I would probably give families in that position is to take the time to try to educate yourself and to do some reading. There's a lot of really great books out there right now like that have come out literally like in the past few months um, that, are, that are sort of, you know, invitations to have, you know, to have new conversations about race and to sort of, you know, figure out what it is that you're so nervous about and then, you know, read up on that topic and, and educate yourself. Um, so that you can then edu educate your kids. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And it could be uh, parenting-related books, of course, but I, I think our local libraries have been amazing. Um, mine, I, I just have been floored, and I've told them so, about uh, the types of books that they've been putting out. This whole last month, they really did a great job putting books out about uh, female mathematicians. And um, along those same lines, we had... Uh, I just read to my kids last night a, a picture book version of um, Hidden Figures, and it, it really does bring up a lot of discussions about what it was like at that time, and my son is incredibly curious and had so many questions. My daughter was getting really irritated, actually, because he kept <laughs> interrupting um, he also, most recently, uh, we were talk we were reading a bunch of books on Harriet Tubman because he was very stuck on the Underground Railroad and just thought that was, was incredibly interesting. So we had taken out a lot of books on that. But there are, you know, if you don't know how to start the conversation with your kids, there are so many different ways, whether it's uh, video programming or, you know, TV but also these children's books. I mean, if you love to read to your kids, that is such a great way for that conversation to start because these books are actually being very blunt about what it was like at that time. And then it can start to you know help people to talk about it now. So um, I like the idea that you're saying, and I just want to put high beams on that, of, of listening to your child, but also connecting the history of what was to what is now. Um, because I, I think that many kids, white kids in particular, think that, and I think I read this in your book too, that they think it's over. Like there is no racism anymore, right? And it wasn't that the perception of some of the kids that you interviewed that it's just not an issue anymore? Absolutely. They, they told me that it wasn't an issue. And um, some of them had some sort of understanding about, you know, oh, we, you know, there used to be racism, you know, back, back in, you know, you know, the slavery, you know, they talk about slavery, or they would talk about um, Rosa Parks, sometimes confusing her with Eleanor Roosevelt. I saw that. <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt on the bus, you know, was, what? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but, and you know, there are some, also some really great books. I'm just sort of learning what, you know, my book has come out and now I'm connecting with all these amazing folks that are doing really great, great, great work in different realms. Um, and I recently learned about a book called Something Happened in Our Town, mm. um, which was written by two, I think, child developments or child psychologists. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a really powerful book about sort of, um, two different families, a white family and a black family, you know, sort of how they're making sense of a, of a shooting, you know, in their community of a, of a, a young, um, black person. And so, you know, it's, it's a, it's an intense book, but I think it's really, you know, you know, one that you might consider adding to the repertoire, you know, just because I think that, um, it does, that book also does a great job of linking the past to the present, which I think is really helpful for kids as they're trying to understand things. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. No, I think that's a great idea. And, and what you're saying is really important that we, you know, the more that we can read uh, books that help to expand our minds, the more we're going to be able to talk to our kids about it in a more educated fashion. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's, there are so many great children's books and there is, a, I think, a big push. And like you said, there's so many resources online, um, sort of, I kind of like collect them, you know, ideas of different books to read. Um, but I also think that there's maybe some possibility with adults reading adult books, yes. you know, it, it also can educate them. Um, you know, one thing that I noticed, I, I teach college, you know, college students, and I noticed that they're really lacking in sort of a multicultural, an understanding of multicultural history in the United States. And so I think that, that that's a reflection of, 
you know, how we were all educated. I mean, I know myself, I, you know, feel like I got a very strong education as a child, but there are major things in our history that I didn't learn about until I was in graduate school, you know? Um, and so I think that taking the time to really learn the history and, you know, even if it's just reading a couple chapters here and there, you know, I think that can also empower parents to feel more confident in answering their kids' questions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it can be sort of a collect, you know, family learning experience, you know, where, where people are kind of doing it in different ways. So anyway, I, I just wanted to point that out too. I think there are some great resources for adults as, as well. I agree with you, and it's it's a really important idea to make sure that we're we're getting the education ourselves as well as educating our kids. And and I and to your point, yes, this is it can be a very uncomfortable conversation. And the more information that we have, uh, the more comfortable we'll feel. So I think it's important. You know, after a uh, you just brought something up in my mind after a terrible week of senseless shootings of black men shot by police in both Louisiana and Minnesota and five police uh, officers gunned down at the protest in Dallas uh, a couple of years ago. I was in a nearby city uh, close to my home with my children when there was a uh, Black Lives Matter event taking place. Um, right in the same that same week when all of that horror was happening. My son, who was then six, who I said is incredibly curious, asked a ton of questions, um, asked me about what was going on and why this was happening and if anybody was going to get hurt at the, at the Black Lives Matter event. And it really wasn't an easy conversation. Uh, we were in the middle of a busy store at the time. And you know what? It's like sometimes these kinds of conversations happen you know, when you're not maybe ready for it or they happen at a moment's notice. Uh, but I crouched down and I was talking to him about racism and prejudice and anger and frustration um, as honestly and as openly as I could. Um, it's, it's a very big and an emotional topic. And I wanted to make sure that my child could understand what was unfair and what once happened was still happening in, in some ways based on what we had already discussed in the past. I mean, this is certainly not our first conversation that had happened, but after this particular conversation, which of course continued later, but after this conversation, a woman did come over to me and she said, um, I heard you talking to, about the protests and you did such a good job. I'm, I'm just an aunt and the kids asked me about it and I just had no idea what to say. I'm, I'm just not good at this. And I think that that's the perception a lot of people have that they, they don't know what to say. They, they don't feel good at it. I, it, a lot of people are in that same boat and I, I am certainly no expert on racism. I, it just saying what's, you know, what's in my mind, in my heart and doing the best I can too. It's not a comfortable topic. But um, it could easily be avoided by white people if they if they don't want to engage. But this, of course, isn't the answer. So if you had the floor right now and there are so many people listening, parents and educators, could you give us some some scripts or some overarching things that we should be saying to our kids about racism now? Sure. So, I mean, I think one of the, the, the points that you just made is really powerful in that when your child asked you in that moment about what was happening and about Black Lives Matter and, and in that exact moment, you already had had previous conversations with your child that you could then, you know, reference back to. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I notice after every time there's like, you know, a big public um, sort of that dialogue about a racist hate crime or something, I notice there's all, there's a call to white parents and teachers to talk to their kid, you know, talk to the kids about race, talk about racism. And I think that what that somehow sometimes misses is the point that you're making about how this needs to be a conversation that happens all the time. It can't only be in these moments of crisis that, that actually, you know, you know, I know you're asking me to give a script, but I think this is, a, this is part of that, mm -hmm. that, that the scripts that you have are scripts that you develop over time. And, and the first time that you talk about racism, you know, it's, it's probably gonna be a lot more difficult to do that at that store in that moment than sort of this being a part of your, you know, relationship with your kid that you build over time that you can talk about these subjects that are, that are often taboo or that are really emotionally charged or difficult, you know? Um, and so I think that's sort of more of a, more of a strategy in mm -hmm. terms of 
how to do it. But in terms of what to do, I mean, a lot of um, psychologists and other other scholars talk about the the utility of the concept of fairness and how fairness can be a really powerful tool because kids are generally very interested in things being fair. And so, you know, that that's one, I think, strategy is to really focus on um, the ways that that, you know, fairness operates or doesn't operate. Mm-hmm. So that's one strategy. And I know there's been a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of scholarship actually about that. So I think that's one, one um, helpful trick. Um, yeah. So other things, I think, again, I'm really trying to ask questions mm-hmm. and find out what kids are, are thinking about. Um, and then maybe having some ideas about, you know, maybe ahead of time thinking about, um, ways that you might answer that. Mm-hmm. Um, one, another thing you said that struck me was just that, you know, that, that aunt that came up to you, you know, and didn't really know how to respond. It's okay. I think it's okay to not know how to respond. I mean, sometimes, you know, I've worked with a lot of kids and they ask you things and you're like, Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I literally have no idea how to respond to that. Um, especially if it's not your kid. It's like know? the story of my life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, I did a lot of childcare actually for, um, as part of this book. And then just in general, I've worked with kids in a lot of different capacities. And, you know, it's also, I, I, I sometimes don't know, you know, how somebody else might be raising their kids. You know, I don't know how to necessarily respond, mm. um, you know, in a way that's respectful of, of them. And, and so I think it's, it's challenging. And so I think that another sort of trick is to remember that you can always come back to these conversations, you know, and and take a little time and try to think about strategically what's a good way to, you know, come at this or take some time to do some research and see what other people have said, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, um, not feel like the conversation has to end, you know, that day at the store or whatever, um, that you can come back to it. And, um, but I, I do want to just say that I think it's so important that you did address it to some extent mm-hmm. at, in that moment, you know, or you, you addressed it fully, but you know, I think it's, it's important to, to not ignore those moments. You know, Beverly Tatum, um, who's a, who's a great scholar. She has that a book called why do all the black kids together in the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she mentions in that beginning of that book about, you know, she's, she's identifies as a black woman and being in a grocery store, um, and, you know, witnessing a little white boy ask his mother a question about, you know, the color of her skin or her daughter's skin. I can't remember exactly, but, you know, and then the mother saying, Oh, sh- honey, we don't talk about that. You know, mm. just be quiet. And that, that silencing I think is, um, is not a good strategy if I had to be honest, mm-hmm. um, just because I don't, I think that that leads to the kinds of questions and anxieties that I noted in my research with at least the kids in my study, um, when their parents told them that talking about race was rude or was racist or, you know, it doesn't change. They still have questions, right? Mm-hmm. They, still, they still have the same question, whether you silence the question or not, it's still there, you know? Right. And, and to that point, we know that when kids don't get their questions answered, yes, it can cause anxiety, but it also can cause them to go to another person to seek out the answer or to, you know, the internet or wherever. And it may not be the answer that you would like them to get. It may be um, something counter to your values. So if it's important to you that your children learn about racism and fairness and they're getting their full answer from the kid on the bus, you're, you're leaving a lot of um, trust in the hands of, of somebody else. So I, I think you're, what you're saying uh, makes sense and that we, we really do need to answer the questions. And it's okay to say, I don't know. I would like to know, though, from you, what kind of questions did you ask the kids to kind of get to your understanding of what they were thinking about race? That's a really great question. So oftentimes... I, you know, I was spending a lot of time with these kids and, in um, so much so that sometimes they forgot I was even there. Um, but you know, like I found that a lot of parents actually have told me this too, but I found that driving, you know, in the car, there's a lot of interesting conversations that happen um, in the car, but oftentimes what would happen is the, the child would, would make a statement about something like this must not be a very good neighborhood. And rather than saying, what are you talking about? This is a perfectly fine neighborhood. You know, mm-hmm. I would say, oh, well, what do you mean? Like, well, you know, why do you think that? Like, 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 why are you saying that? Um, and part of that was because for my study, I actually wanted to know, you know, why are, how are they coming up with these ideas? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that can be a tool that parents can use to try to discern what exactly is going on, right? How, how are kids 
thinking about this because even if parents are the ones that are answering their kids' questions, their children still, like you said, go on the bus and talk to all kinds of other kids and they, they consume media. And mm -hmm. we know from communication scholars that even in children's television programming, there's so many messages about race that are being conveyed. Um, you know, so I think that, that there's so, the kids are learning about race in so many different ways that, you know, whether you talk about it or not, you know, finding out what they're thinking, I think, is, is one key um, trick. Another thing I did was I showed the children pictures of different celebrities. Mm -hmm. um, and what was interesting about this is that I initially wanted to use this as a little, like, kind of activity during my interview with them. Um, I, for I did a formal interview with each child. And what was interesting is, is that, you know, I asked them to tell me who these celebrities were and what they knew about them and then to identify them by race. And some of the kids were, were very, you know, happy to do that. But then other children were like, no, I can't, you know, I can't even, I can't identify anyone by their race. That's racist to do that. And so I realized, you know, that wasn't my intention of that study, of that part of the study, you know, to, to get that response. But that was what the kids really believed. So, you know, I think finding creative ways to talk about race, whether it be drawing upon things that are going on in the news or, ta or thinking about even things like celebrities that they really look up to, um, you know, I think that there are lots of ways that you can start conversations about race that don't necessarily have to make everyone feel defensive or, or emotional, you know, that it can be a much more normative part of your day, you know, that, that this, and some of the parents actually did that, that they just, you know, they were talking about race so much that with their kids, that their children didn't feel like it was a difficult topic. Mm -hmm. So one last thing I want to tell you too, um, Another thing I want to tell you, when you were mentioning, you know, kids learning about race from their friends, some of the children actually compared learning about race to learning about sex, which that was super interesting. And they were telling me that just like their teachers didn't want them to talk about sex at school, their teachers also didn't want them to talk about race and their parents didn't want to talk, you know, so it was like for some of these kids in their heads, they were drawing kind of a similarity. There was a similarity between these two subjects that many people argue is important that children are educated about their own bodies or about, you know, dynamics of inequality, you know, but yet we, we really struggle. So it's one of the reasons why I love your, I love your work um, and trying to empower people to have these conversations that kids actually, I think, generally want to have, you know. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. And un interestingly, while we've been talking, I was actually equating the same thing. I was felt very similarly um, in terms of, uh, you know, feeling like race and sex were <laughs> on this, this similar line of taboo, you know, that we don't want to talk to our kids about it or the discomfort in talking about it or feeling like you don't have all the information or um, nervous about, you know, what you're going to say or what your child is going to say. Uh, so I, I, I really enjoyed that comparison because it's exactly what I was thinking. It's, it's so interesting that the, the kids have picked up on that as well. I was thinking of, because I'm writing a book on this, I'm like, oh, I'm definitely going to be comparing those things. And you just said it. So that's interesting. Yeah. And it's funny too, because some of the, some of the, so I went back and re-interviewed the kids when they were in high school. And, um, one of the, one of them in particular, she told me that she did not understand why, you know, they had sex ed at their school and, you know, she had a lot of, she had a lot of critiques about the sex ed that she had, but, you know, she mentioned that, but then she said, oh, you know, why didn't we have, why didn't we ever have like race education? You know, why didn't we ever have a class that, where we really talked about, you know, sort of the, the this particular subject and how racism works. And, and this was actually a school that I think was trying to do some of that work, but from her perspective as a young person, they weren't doing nearly enough. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It well. is, it is interesting. And it also, I, I I took a class in college, um, my first year in college, on multiculturalism, and uh, and I think it was also racism in America. And I actually seem to remember I was the only white kid in that class, which is a shame. Um, and I was definitely uncomfortable, but that's okay. I think the message there is sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable, and we still need to have the conversation. It's still, it, whether it's on sex or race or anything else, we do need to put ourselves in situations where we're uncomfortable so that we can move forward and have these conversations and educate ourselves. And hopefully, if we have the conversations earlier with our children and put them in situations where, yes, they may be uncomfortable and they may need to figure that out a little bit, 
that they will continue to put themselves in those situations and maybe it will be a little less uncomfortable as they go, as they grow up. Absolutely. And, and certainly, um, you know, for some of the, some of the kids in my book, they, who had friends and, and like, you know, real friendships with, um, with, was one child that has three, there's three boys that he's friends with who are all black. And it's so funny the way that they met each other. He tells me about how he was at the playground and he saw these, this guy jumping off the play structure. And that was why they became friends mm-hmm. because they to jump off things together. Um, and so even though that sounds like just a really simplistic little thing, I mean, the point is, is that those kids were in the same playground you know, which is sort of an equal status kind of interaction, right? They're just playing. Um, not certainly things can happen, you know, that, that on playgrounds, but, you know, saying that, but, um, you know, this was an opportunity for them to form a meaningful relationship. And then later when, um, these same boys were being, um, sort of from this white child's perspective targeted by the teachers, um, in a way that the white kids weren't, you know, he was able to, you know, he he was very upset and he was able to sort of advocate with his friends about what was going on at the school. So it was actually a form of empowerment that he had, you know, that he really had these relationships. And so I think that, like you said, starting at young ages can be really important. Um, and thinking about the power dynamics that are at play in your community and all, you know, our communities are all very different. Um, I think that can be really helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, so you've talked about a bunch of do's and don'ts throughout this interview. You talked about making sure you don't stay silent. You have in some way, you know, alluded to the fact that we really need to, if we can put our children into situations like the playground where they can meet other kids uh, who are different from them, who are uh, racially different and multiculturally different, that they're going to form friendships, learn something. But I would love to learn a little bit more about any do's and don'ts you would you might recommend to help kids understand the gravity and frequency of racism, to maybe bridge some of those divides. What can parents do or not do that can help this next generation of white kids see that racism and privilege is still happening um, and that they can do something about that? Yeah, so one of the things that I talk a lot about in my research is this sort of conundrum of privilege that many of the parents in my book face, um, where they feel like on the one hand, they have to give their child every opportunity that they can. And that that's part of being a good parent is to use your resources to get advantages for your kids. But then on the other hand, they, for some of them, at least they feel very passionately about raising children who are race conscious or who are anti-racist or who are not racist, kind of use different language around that. Um, and so they sort of face this paradox of, well, I want to, I want to give my kid, you know, the best education and that, that means something to them about maybe sending them to a private school. But I also want to teach my kids about fairness and equal opportunity. And so they kind of are in this bind. Um, and so I think that navigating that bind is actually really important for how kids learn about race. And so it's, you know, I don't really have do's and don'ts mm-hmm. to suggest, but again, I want to just reiterate that talking about race is one thing, but how you actually then navigate the world, mm-hmm. that that those actions send really powerful messages to children. And so if you want, you know, if we, if we collectively as a society want to think about the future generations as working to reduce forms of inequality, then I think that that means that we have to, you know, find ways to, you know, act, you know, when they're young, that, that communicate to them that everyone actually is equal or should be equal, not that they are equal, but they should be equal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, trying to be, I guess my advice to parents is to try to be thoughtful about how to line your actions up with your behaviors, because what I found was that that's actually where kids are learning about race. And then, and then the conversations about race that happen, those are going to be varied depending upon the community that you live in and the choices that you are making. If you do decide to send your kids to private school, you know, there maybe should be some conversations about why and what that means that are honest. Um, and I, I think that just pretending like kids don't learn that they are, you know, I mean, like, for example, some of the kids in my book who went to private school told me they were better than kids that went to public school, mm-hmm. that they were smarter than those kids, that they were going to be leaders, whereas the other kids were, were not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, these are not things that our parents want them to think necessarily. You know, I think every parent wants their kid to feel like they're special, you know, but, you know, they, but they didn't, they didn't want their children to have the sense of entitlement um, necessarily. Mm-hmm. And so, 
yeah, I guess my advice is that is that we start thinking more collectively, you know, in whatever way that we work with children about how what we say, you know, may or may not line up with what we do. Very important. And, and putting high beams on that, that, as you said, actions speak louder than words in this case. And if we tell kids that everything should be equal and yet all of our actions show that we feel that our kids should be superior than we're, we're definitely saying something much louder with our actions. So I think that's a, a, a vital, a vital strategy, um, is to, is to make sure that we're being aware of our actions and that they back up our words. Um, in a nutshell, why do you think it is so important for parents to teach their kids about race? So, I think that, um, you know, in, in, in my book, I'm so focused on affluent white families. Um, and, and again, I've already talked about why that is, but I think it's so important for people in positions of privilege, you know, that, that they haven't asked for necessarily, but that nonetheless they occupy, you know, in terms of how people are positioned in our society. Um, you know, it, you're, if you're raising a child that is in a position of privilege, um, they already have a lot of power as a privileged young person. Um, you know, I think a lot about when young people protest and when they, you know, try to make their voices heard, you know, which kids get listened to and which kids don't, um, you know, start drawing comparisons between, you know, kids that are youth leaders that are part of Black Lives Matter, as I mentioned earlier, and then, you know, some, some other, you know, at least um, bit se- seemingly white groups that are, that are protesting, youth groups that are protesting about things in America, you know, whose voices get heard. And so I think that, you know, when your child is in a position of privilege, you know, you have a real responsibility, I think, to um, help them navigate that privilege in a way that will not only, you know, benefit them, but will also benefit people around you. Um, And I think that it's important to recognize that, that, you know, at least for the families in my book, I mean, these children are, are, I am, very certain that they will go on to be leaders. They will, you know, they thought they were going to be leaders and I think that they probably will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we live in a diverse democracy and it's important, I think, for parents to take responsibility for, you know, the fact that, you know, we, we, we're not, you know, we're, we're trying to all, you know, figure this out together. And, um, you know, I think we can have collective, uh, understandings of the world more than individual ones. That might be that might be a better sort of gift for their children, you know, in terms of a more equal uh, future. Was there ever a moment in your book, when you were researching your book, that you were shocked or sort of knocked off your feet about from something that one of the children said to you? Absolutely. Um, you know, I was funny. I was talking to these kids about, um, well, I was, they were actually telling me about how, um, they were very interested to figure out which race Rihanna was the musician Rihanna. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they decided that the way they would determine this was to take bronzer makeup and rub it on their skin and see if they could, you know, they had very white skin to see if they could get their white skin to look like Rihanna's. And if they could, then Rihanna must be white like them. Um, and, and, you know, with, you know, wearing lots of bronzer rather than black or a person of color. And so I was struck by that in the moment because not so much that they were creatively thinking of ways to figure this answer out, but that they were so invested in Rihanna looking like them, you know, being, being like them. And it was really striking because, you know, these are, these are, you know, like 12 year old girls and, you know, they really, I don't know. I just, I, I was really surprised that they, you know, they love this musician, but they, but they, but they want her to be white, mm-hmm. you know, and that was really powerful to me. Um, there were a number of things that happened, you know, the, the things that the kids said that, that were shocking to me. Um, and then also things that honestly that the parents said, um, and I can give, I can give you an example if you, if we have time, but yes, yeah, definitely give us an example. Sure. So, um, there's this thing called water ballet. I'm not sure if, uh, you're familiar. I was not. I'm not. Um, <laughs> water, <laughs> water ballet basically, um, is some type of combination of like synchronized swimming and ballet. Mm-hmm. And so these were all girls and they, you know, had these very expensive costumes on and all this waterproof makeup. This was at like a private pool in the summer. And I was there, um, 
you know, and as a white woman, I could just walk in there. Nobody questioned my presence. You know, they just, they didn't even pay attention to me. Um, but they, I, I did know one of the families, which is, you know, part of it, but, um, if the moms were sitting in the stands and they were all, you know, dancing along and it was, it was actually a song by Beyonce and they were dancing along and, and the one mom said to the other mom, Oh, look, they're, sh- they're shaking their ghetto booties. Mm-hmm. And this is what she, they, she was commenting about the dance moves that the, that the girls were, you know, mm-hmm. engaging in or whatever. And I, and, and then the mom was like, Oh, haha, you know, they're laughing about this. And I was just sort of observing it. And then after the performance, the girls came over to their moms and everyone was hugging each other and happy, you know, and, and the moms again repeated this, you know, state this phrase, which to me is like, you know, a, a, a form of objectification mm-hmm. of black bodies and, you know, not at all the kind of message that you'd want to send your children about the way that it's okay to comment on people's bodies. And, um, you know, it, and it was also, it was just, I was just really shocked. Um, mm-hmm. and the, and the, the, the thing that really struck me was the laughter, you know, that, that this was funny, that it was somehow funny to, to, to mock, um, you know, Beyonce's body, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and, and I think that that's a good example of like, again, actions, you know, I mean, this, that might not be a big action about school choice or neighborhood choice, but it's about how you behave, you know, with your, with your friends and, um, you know, the kinds of more, you know, I don't think those parents thought they were doing anything wrong. Um, but I think they could be a little more thoughtful about what kind of messages they're conveying. Right, right. Just being thoughtful about the the words that you're choosing and what you're relaying in casual conversation, but also certainly to your child. That certainly was a, a double whammy with uh, both body image as well as race all swirled into one. (laughs) Thank you for that example. And, you know, as some of the people who are listening right now, who are probably um, taking a breath in and realizing that there have been things that they have said that may underscore um, a, a value that they don't support, it's you can move forward from this and that it's, we all, you know, we all do these kinds of things. We all say things that we wish we didn't. And you can always go back and say, I really wish I didn't say that. Um, and, uh, I should have said this instead, or I should have said nothing. So even if you're listening to this podcast today and you're like, Hmm, I really do need to have some more conversations about race, or um, I think I d- didn't uh, do justice to this topic, and I'm going to do it uh, again and again. Um, that's okay. So I just want to say that because yes. I, I, I always, even though I'm I'm in my studio right now, I always feel like that collective breath that I sometimes get when I'm presenting in front of people. Where you know, if I'm doing something on, on body image or, or conversations with kids, and they're like, <gasps> and I'm like, no, no, wait, like I know you're you're thinking this to yourself, and they all laugh, and I it's it's okay to make the mistake but now we can move forward with great knowledge so out of all the things that we talked about today or perhaps we haven't what would you say is your top tip what is the top tip that you would like to impart to the parents and educators and coaches listening today to ensure that our kids are more knowledgeable about race and racism and that it is moving towards a hopefully better future for everybody. I think my most important message is that while we definitely need to talk to kids, we also need to listen to kids and that we need to figure out what we're going to say based on what they already think. Mm -hmm. Um, This notion that young people don't have ideas about race, it just doesn't, it doesn't really play out that way. Um, at least not when you interview them or, or, you know, and I'm not the only person to talk to young people about race. I mean, there's other research in schools and in summer camps and, and, you know, other, other arenas that young people have ideas about race. And so in order to figure out how to talk to them about this, we have to listen to them and understand, you know, their perspectives so that we can figure out the best way to respond. Absolutely. Why don't you give us the resource of the week? Um, where can people go to get more information about you and your book and everything that you've been talking about throughout this interview today? Sure. Um, so I have a website. It's margarethagerman.com. Um, it's not particularly fancy, but it's a website. Um, and then, um, you know, I think, you know, I, I, 
I have some other ideas of resources that I can share with you if you'd mm-hmm. like um, that are not just my own, um, but certainly that's my website that has my my scholarly work and some other things on it. Well, if there's anything that you can send to me, I do extensive show notes. So if there's anything you can send to me, I will put the link at the bottom of the show notes for any um, additional resources that you think would be good along, of course, with your book, which will be on the show notes as well for everybody to um, press on so that they can read more about the book and and purchase the book because it's an important topic and we've got to dig in further as as parents as and as educators so thank you so much for coming on the show today i i just love the information that you brought to the table and i appreciate you really looking thoughtfully into a topic that some uh some people would probably shy away from um given that it it can be a a tough topic to cover. So I I really appreciate that you came on the show today, that you're doing these interviews and that you've written this book and done, uh, done some very extensive research. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for all the work that you do with your, with your podcast. I think it's really great. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Well, thank you, everybody. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. There's great podcasts up there. Whatever the topic that you are worried about, we got it there. And uh, I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And if you can, I really would love it if you could go up to iTunes and rate and review this podcast. We want more people to hear about all of these incredible ideas that Dr. Hagerman is talking about and that other people have talked about on our podcast. So if you can go up there and rate and review it, more people will see it and it gets a a bigger standing in the uh, podcast community. I would love it. I just want to say thank you for that. Please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. I see you. I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.